What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are there any real distinctions between them, or are those just cultural constructs? It seems that even broaching the subject of gender distinction has become taboo. What are we to make of the rapidly shifting gender and sexual ethics of our culture? Are our faith convictions hate speech if they differ with the cultural norms of premarital sex, cohabitation before or instead of marriage, divorce, homosexual marriage, and gender transitioning? Is the Bible archaic and simply out of touch with reality? Has Christianity become too impractical for the real world? What does the Bible say about all of this anyways? What does it say about masculinity and femininity? And how does that play out in marriage, singleness, parenting, life, and in ministry? God's Word reveals a good God whose ways are good that teaches us that men and women are equal and unique. In fact, the Gospel frees us to celebrate these distinctions, revealing the way in which we have been designed to flourish. If you are newer, we've, we've started a series on the premise that if there is a God who has created everything, um, we should find out what his intentions were for that. And so we find ourselves in a bit of a cultural moment. I'm sure every generation can say that, but, but we feel like this is a bit of a cultural moment where the culture is speaking loudly and roundly about things regarding masculinity, femininity, gender in general, and, and the culture is rapidly changing. And so where the church is silent on these kinds of things, we're only creating confusion, and we may, in fact, at worst, uh, lose a generation. And so we're trying to speak into the culture, speak into this moment, truths of God's Word. So we're rooting ourselves in the text, but our aim is to speak from the text God's view and vision of gender. And so we're tackling this in all kinds of ways, marriage and parenting and the fact that God created me male and female and answering the question of why did he do it that way and getting into some of the complex issues of homosexuality and divorce and singleness. And so we're, we, we want to be really faithful. And so we're taking our time. You're not going to hear me say everything about this this morning. Um, we're also going to bring our cultural biases here, and so you won't hear me say everything that will satisfy those, and yet we're going to try and speak into the subject matter and give ourselves to particular texts of Scripture and send you away reading and studying and wrestling, either on your own or in your life groups. Um, so we have this premise that there's a designer, and if there is a God who created all things, the way in which he made us is worthy of our investigation. And the Bible tells us that there is a God. And so we believe that. We believe in the Bible and we believe that there is a God and that he made all things and that the way in which he has designed us to function is for our flourishing. Meaning he hasn't just arbitrarily created things with no rhyme or reason. Or he hasn't arbitrarily created to say, well, you know what, I'm going to just... They'd like it this way, I'm going to do it this way just because. No, underneath it all, God hasn't created that way, but has created in such a way that we are to see a beautiful design, a design in which if we are to give ourselves to the way in which God has orchestrated things, that we will see an opportunity for flourishing in life. This morning, we are looking at men in marriage. And so I thought we'd wait till next week to talk about women in marriage. Let's like, let Thanksgiving happen, and then we'll move on. We'll get there next week. Um, and so 
we're looking at men in marriage. So first I want to just talk about men for a minute, then we'll talk about men in marriage. And, and it wouldn't be unfair to say that there are a lot of men who are confused these days. We'll unpack that a little bit. Um, I really like a website called The Babylon Bee. And if you are able to laugh at yourself, if you have that ability to laugh at yourself, you may also like The Babylon Bee. There is a website called The Onion, which is sort of the satirical fake news. Well, The Babylon Bee is the satirical fake Christian subculture news. And uh, it, it's very generous in making fun of nearly every denomination. And, like, it's very rounded in its mocking, really. And so, and I, I respect that. So um, one of their headlines really caught my eye a few months ago. I thought I'd share it with you this morning. Here's what, here's what the headline said on the Babylon Bee. Men's wild at heart study group gets hopelessly lost in lightly wooded field behind church. Now, this is a little bit of a play on John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, which isn't without its problems, but I think it, 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 the premise of the book is, look, there has been a feminization of the church, is John Eldridge's assessment, and we need to bring back the masculinity of, right, godly manhood. And so I think he, he uses some creative license, some places where it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, and he'll say, you know, like Maximus, the gladiator, I am Maximus, and kind of goes down that tangent. And yet there's, there's time for it from uh, some people because it's like, yeah, there's something there, right? So anyways, the Babylon Bee is picking up on this wild at heart study, and these men get hopelessly lost in a lightly wooded field behind the church. Quoting, quoted in, in the little news report, we were really fearing for our lives out there. It was frigidly cold, group leader Rudy Carson told reporters of the 58 degree, that's Fahrenheit, spring morning, so it's actually quite nice. Um, we tried waving down passing semi-trucks and joggers, but no one heard our cries for help. Hank ran across the street to the 7-Eleven, but they didn't have a public bathroom or a phone we could use, so we were back at square one. And then the, the article concludes, after all this, Carson says, he's not giving up on the wild at heart study. There's something primal, risky, and wild in God's heart. While we may have come uncomfortably close to death in this harrowing experience, we're that much closer to finding out what it means to be a real man of God. <laughs> so, anyways, so uh, they are having a little bit of a a challenge to discover what they're sensing as there's, is there more to, to biblical manhood than we're seeing in the church today and all of that kind of stuff while getting lost in a lightly treed field. Um, and so we, but we do this though because we're pendulum swingers generally. That's just the way we are. We're pendulum swingers. And so on the one end of the pendulum is like, you know what a man is? A man is a guy who eats bacon, watches sports, does not communicate at all verbally, right, in terms of expressing feelings or emotion and loves octagons and, you know, like, right, it's just kind of this, well, that's just, that's cheap, you know, like, that's, that's not, can we define a man that way? And yet there are categories of culture that would say, right, that's it. And then there's the, the, the pendulum swings to the opposite end, which is there's nothing distinct. And in fact, my manliness or my masculinity is maybe something to be shoved down. I don't know what to do with it at all. There's no distinction. I'm not going to accept, I'm not going to even make any distinctions. And so there's the swinging from one to the other. And Eric Metaxas in his book, um, Seven Men, which is a biography, short, brief biographies of seven men that he would call heroic and of significance in history. He writes this in his book, Seven Men. He also wrote a great book called Seven Women. 
But in his book, Seven Men, in the introduction, he says, in a world where all authority is questioned and in which our appreciation of real leadership and especially fatherhood has been badly damaged, we've ended up with two very distorted ideas about manhood. He picks up on it. The first false idea about manhood is the idea of being macho, of being a big shot, of using strength to be domineering and to bully those who are weaker. Obviously, this is not God's idea of what a real man is. It's someone who's not grown up emotionally, who might be a man on the outside, but who on the inside is simply an insecure and selfish boy. The second false choice is to be emasculated, to essentially turn away from your masculinity and to pretend that there is no real difference between men and women. Your strength as a man has no purpose, so being strong isn't even a good thing. And so he begins to ask the question, and we ask the question from that. Well, if these are misses, if these are false ideas, well, what's true? What's God's idea about manhood and masculinity? Well, it's neither of these, but we recognize as we started in our study that God has made us in his image, male and female, and celebrates masculinity and femininity as beautiful and unique and wonderful Men are generally stronger. I've already talked a lot about strength. Just in the few moments, we've begun to talk about masculinity. But of course, it's so much more than that. This idea of being macho really is selfish aggression in a selfish way, using your strength for your own gains at the expense of others. It's selfish aggression. But the emasculated view is also a form of selfish passivity, It's not actually passive at all. It's an active denial of responsibility. So where Adam stood idly by as Eve was tempted and ate of the fruit, and then she passes it to him. He was there and did not intervene, and his responsibility he did not fulfill. And so God goes first to him and says, what have you done? See, this emasculated view is a selfish passivity, but really it's active in its own way. It's an active denial of the responsibility given to the things particularly masculine. So there is a third way. There is a way in which God has seemed to design masculinity, and that is to use that strength to protect women and children, to use and lay down that strength in service of others. It's a unique opportunity for men. Now, I've talked about strength here a little bit, and I'll talk about it for a little longer, but we're going to go beyond that. See, God has made us in his image, created us, designed us, male and female, men and women, equal in dignity and value. We said in Genesis 1, God created them, male and female, in his image. Beautiful equality. Never forget that. Never hear any other layer that we're adding to this mosaic of a picture of masculinity and femininity, anything that leaves that picture. And yet, we also see our distinctions and our uniqueness. So while there's equality and dignity and value in men and women, there are distinctions. Let me give you an example of one. There's a a woman named Tamika Brents, and she's a mixed martial arts fighter. And uh, a couple of years ago, she she fought a transgender athlete. So um, she was, uh, she often won her fights, a mixed martial artist, arts fighter, and she won often, was Um, considered one of the best, Um, but she on one particular occasion fought a transgendered athlete, born male, self-identified as transgender female, and when they fought, this is what she said after the fight. Tamika Brent said, I've fought a lot of women and have never felt the strength that I felt in a fight 
as I did that night. I can only say I've never felt so overpowered ever in my life. And I'm an abnormally strong female. This article has, has nothing to do with faith, but it was saying that women's sports will never recover from this. Men's sports will be fine. Women's sports will never recover from this. What they're getting at is that they're deep like down. If we want to just talk manhood, womanhood, just for a little bit, we can just talk biology and say nine husbands out of ten are going to be stronger than their wives. There are the exceptions, but they are not the rule. My wife goes to the gym regularly, runs constantly, ran a half marathon recently, I sit at work, and I often go home and continue to sit in a different kind of chair or a couch. Um, and that's me, and I, I got to work that through and uh, make some changes. But look, if we were going to do a short sprint, I'll beat her. If we were going to do an arm wrestle right now, I'll beat her. Okay? So there's biology. Let's just be honest. There's biology. We went running in Calgary when we were there over the summer. We went up a hill at the end of the run, and she was just gone. Like, I was, I was done. So I, I said short sprint. I was very specific. My experience is she will just slaughter me on the long haul. Um, but listen, now we're just talking about strength and doing some identification there to say men biologically are stronger. Is that pointless? Let's start to add to that because there's, there's this idea that there's male and then there's a man. So we have, ma there's male genitalia. We're going here. This is, we're going there. There's male genitalia. I have two boys, four-year-old, six-year-old, male genitalia. Are they men? No way. <laughs> they're not men. They're male, but they're not men. So we're understanding, okay, so masculinity or maleness, he's, they are Boys, they will be men in one sense, and yet to be a man is more than just to be male. So let's start to look to the scriptures a little bit, and then we're going to get into marriage and build on that. But first, I want us to look at 1 Kings chapter 2. King David is on his deathbed, and he summons his eldest son. He summons Solomon. And he says, I am about to go the way of all the earth, right? I am about to go back to the dust. And here's what he says. Here's his blessing on him. Here's his instruction to him. Solomon, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. It's very interesting. He's calling them to be strong. He's calling them to be a man. And then he's really kind of practically playing that out. And he says, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Be faithful to his commands. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says practically the same thing. Thing. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. These passages begin to expand these kind of basic ideas of maleness or manhood and start to paint a picture of biblical manhood starts to say things like only being a man and acting like a man constitute true manhood. And so these texts are saying things about to act with courage and strength in faithful obedience to Jesus and all these things being done in love. That's true manhood. Or as C.S. Lewis put it in his essay, Men Without Chests, speaking of men without hearts and men without courage, he said men with chests are large-hearted real men. 
Is there strength there? Yes. Is there courage there? Yes. But these are large-hearted men. Love is there as well. So a primary characteristic of biblical manhood is to give yourself for others when it costs you to do so, rather than look out for yourself first. One of the reasons why this is important at this day and time is because there are too many boys out there today. Or as one preacher puts it, uh, boys who can shave. Yeah, they got men's bodies, but they haven't become a man yet. Boys used to become men in their teens, and then they became men in their 20s, and we're hoping they'll become men in their 30s. And, you know, where, where, are we, where are we headed here? And so we want to say something of this strength that exists, but we also say that it exists in faithfulness to God, selflessness with the uniqueness that has been given in such a way that even at personal cost, we'll look out for others. Now, I'd like us to root ourselves in the text where we'll be in this morning. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to spend some time there. A couple weeks back when we talked about the meaning of marriage, we rooted ourselves in two verses. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Here's what they said. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is before the fall. This is God's ideal for marriage. This is what happens. One husband, one wife become one flesh, and that's God's doing. And then Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Meaning that God made marriage, he created it that way in the garden. Thousands of years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, you know why marriage was even made? You know what the purpose was for it? You know what this mystery is, or this divine secret is? It's that all marriages are about Christ in the church. That's the point. That's why you're married. That's why marriage exists. It's a picture of Christ and the church. So to summarize, we could say it this way. The ultimate purpose and perfect model for human marriage is the relationship between Christ and the church. We talked about a couple of weeks ago the fact that God designed marriage. We talked about that it contains covenant that we are to keep and that it is a picture of the gospel, this Christ and the church picture. Well, a natural question that comes from that is, yeah, well, how? Okay, our marriages are meant to be distinct. Christian marriages are meant to look distinct. And they refer to Christ in the church. But how? Like, how do our marriages refer to Christ in the church? Well, that's where we're going to start to put meat on the bone. We're going to do that this week in referring to husbands and next week in referring to wives. All in this text in Ephesians 5 where Paul is talking about the fact that this mystery is profound and refers to Christ in the church. He unpacks how our marriages look like Christ and the church. So before we uh, look at the first point, I want to read a couple more passages in Ephesians. Um, first, Ephesians 4, verse 15. Just listen. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, which, with which it is equipped. So we're, talk, we're seeing here that Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is our leader. He's the chief shepherd. And we are the body. The church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to this part. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see that Jesus, by the Father, has been given dominion over all things. He has all authority, and he's referred to as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. I read all that because now we pick up the text in Ephesians 5, verse 22, where it says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Like I said, we're talking about that after Thanksgiving. Come back next week. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Listen to verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now we said the ultimate purpose and perfect model for human marriage is the relationship between Christ and the church. And we want to say, how? How does it refer to Christ in the church? Well, we're seeing our first view of it. Here's number one. Christ's headship is the model for a husband's headship. It declares that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And we just saw that it was that Jesus is the chief shepherd and leads the church and is over the church. So Christ's headship is the model for a husband's headship. We cannot negate the fact that men are called to this role. So now we have to do a bit of exegesis. We have to do a little bit of the study of the text. We have to dig in and, uh, and discover. Before we can apply it, we have to say, well, what was it meaning in its context? What do these words mean? How do we understand them rightly? It's only after we do that work that we can begin to make faithful application. So we have to look at the use of this word head. Head means one in authority. Head means one in authority. We saw it in Ephesians 1. We saw it in Ephesians 4. Christ is the head of the church. He's given dominion and authority over the church. But some modern interpreters dispute this claim and, and claim that the word head, kephele, means origin or life source without the meaning of authority. So I just have to confess to you as we do this work that there are differing views on interpretation of this word. There is the interpretation of head meaning um, one in authority, and then there is a, another meaning, which is origin or life source, without the meaning of authority. So the belief is, uh, in, in this interpretation, is saying that the husband is the source of the wife in the sense of life-giving love, service, and help to the wife. Um, but to those who claim that the word head means source or origin without the sense of authority, to those, Wayne Grudem, a New Testament scholar, would say, or has said, you claim that the Greek word for head means source without the idea of authority. He goes on to say, please show me one example in all of ancient Greek where this word, kephele, is used to refer to a person and means what you claim, namely non-authoritative source. He goes on, we cannot find any text in Greek literature 
where person A is called the head of person or person B, person or persons B, and is not in a position of authority over that person or persons. So that's interpretation of the word. There is not one instance where it's been, um, where that word shows up not carrying the weight of authority with the word. And then contextually, we need to just look at our Bibles here because Ephesians 5.21 through chapter 6, verse 9, regarding submission and leadership, um, they go on not only from husbands and wives and their relationship, but child and parent and slave and slave master. Or a modern contextualization of that would be employee and employer. And in every instance, we see that, well, the employer has authority and leadership over the employee. We see that the parents have authority and leadership over the children. And so... um, What follows is not only in the exegesis, not only in the study of the word and not finding it to mean anything less than that, we also see that in the context it fits. And then finally, it's been said sometimes, well, this is cultural, right? What Paul is saying is cultural. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's bringing Ephesus and its culture into it. And so we need to take that into account, right? Well, we do need to take that into account, but I want you to notice something in in the verses I've read in verses 22 to 24, that this isn't cultural, but it's transcultural, or in other words, divinely planned for all time because of this. The text says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Let me ask you a question. Is there an expiry date on that? Is Christ still the head of the church? So if we're, if, if, if we're saying it's just a cultural thing, well, Paul's not saying that. He's saying the reason the husband is the head of the wife is because Jesus is the head of the church. And that's got nothing to do with Ephesus. That's not got anything to do with the first century the basis for Paul's statement is not first century Ephesus, but Christ and the church. So that's the kind of most kind of digging we need to do in here, and I'm getting you to do that work with me. But, but now, if I'm making you uncomfortable because I'm saying something along the lines of, well, then headship stands, what on earth are you talking about? What does that mean? What are the implications? Fair? So let me give you a definition of this term, headship, and I'm giving it to you from this text in Ephesians 5 exclusively. It's all there. Here's the definition, and we'll put it on the screen. In the partnership of husband and wife, created equal in God's image, the husband bears the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home, leading to the flourishing of the family. Now, I've carefully worded a few things there. The first is this, in the partnership of husband and wife, because that's exactly what it is. We're talking about partnership created equal in God's image. We're talking, talking imago Dei, image of God, men and women, beautifully equal. In the partnership of husband and wife, created equal in God's image. The husband bears the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership. We'll see that in the text. Protection, we'll see that in the text. And provision in the home, we will see that in the text. Leading to the flourishing of the family. So I also use the term primary responsibility, or you could say unique leadership, which is to say not the only responsibility or the only leadership. And the reason that that clarification is important is this. Does anybody know any women who can lead? Amen. 
Some of the like, greatest movers and shakers that I know, women that get things done, women that, like people in the world that call you to something great, are, there's women in doing that. Like, there are women who can lead. There are women who can teach. And God gives these gifts and these, right? The, the Spirit moves in this way and is like, not gender specific in giving gifts. He gives gifts, gifts just fluidly and beautifully as he deems. And so we need to recognize that I'm saying primary responsibility according to God's word that doesn't negate the gifts and the wonderful contributions of a wife. We're going to talk more about that next week and how all of this pieces together. But I am saying nonetheless that husbands bear primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home, leading to the flourishing of the family. Let's just talk really practically about a little bit of that. You saw some statistics last week from Pastor Chris. I'm going to show you some more this week. I will uh, let you know they're from Switzerland, but the reason that they're from Switzerland is that most countries don't keep such detailed um, statistics about religious groups. Switzerland does, and um, they are, have a lot of similarities in a lot of ways, and, um, and just even judging from experience in church ministry, a lot of this seems really faithful. It is a survey and statistics about church attendance of mothers and fathers, and here's what it says. Where the father and mother are regular attenders of church, 33% of their children will become regular churchgoers. 41% will end up attending irregularly, leaving only 26% to end up not practicing at all. So if a mother and father regularly uh, attend church, are faithful, um, uh, 26% of them will not carry that on. Where a father is irregular and a mother regular in attendance, look where it goes. 3% of their children will become regular attenders. It just went down 30% where dad doesn't go as much. 59% will become irregular attenders and 38% will not attend at all. Where the father's non-practicing and mother regular in her attendance, only 2% will become regular attenders and only 37% will attend irregularly, leaving 61% who will not attend. Now let's reverse it. Where a father regularly attends and a mother is irregular, remember, where a mother and father went regularly, it was 33%. Where the father goes regularly and the mother irregularly, it goes up to 38% from 33 And where the father goes regularly and mother is non-practicing, it goes up again to 44 So where dad goes and mom doesn't go, 44% of their kids will attend regularly. Whereas where dad's not going and mom's going, only 2% will. And so you have to ask the question... It, it, it was just, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going. It was, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, <laughs> so Q&A, we can do Q&A later. It's good. But what we see is the evidence points to the fact that the children's loyalty to the father's commitment grows in proportion to the mother's laxity, indifference, or hostility. It's strange, no? It's weird. But see, God has made a design, and the design leads to human flourishing that calls a husband and a dad to bear the primary responsibility of Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And where he negates that, the family suffers. It's where statistics say, yeah, the Bible's true. See, these statistics actually also support what Pastor Chris shared last week about absentee fathers. It's what psychologists and criminologists know. God's design for human flourishing demands that men be men. And he designed it that way. 
And so there's a bunch of people walking around with daddy issues. Because he's created this husband and father to fill a role that is a high calling. And it's calling men not to just be male, but to be biblically godly men. I need to, we always need to stop at this point and say, listen, if you're a faithful mom and there's not a faithful dad in the picture, right? I'm tempted not even to show these stats on these kinds of moments because of that very scenario. But I would ask you not to despair. For, I could give you more reasons. I'll just give you two quickly. Don't despair, faithful moms. One reason is that we place a high value on discipleship here at Central, including discipleship of our children, and we have godly father figure mentors for your children here. And we seek, and we continually seek to build that in. Where it's absent in your family, may it not be absent in our church family. We want to shore you up. We want your kids to come to church and have a godly man there who becomes a father figure to your kids and just loves on them, teaches them what it means to be a godly boy growing into a godly man. Secondly, some of the most godly men I know grew up with faithful moms and absentee dads. Some of the most faithful men I know grew up with absentee dads or spiritually absentee dads. Jesus loves you. Jesus hears your prayers. And we want to walk with you in that. So we're making a case here to say that headship stands because it's not cultural. And yet we're defining it as pouring life out as primary responsibility to live in that way. John Stott, uh, not with us anymore, but just really well regarded. I really respect him as a 20th century pastor and theologian. He said, if headship means power in any sense then it's power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all of this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. So we go from saying headship, yes, but look at what it means. Now to saying that the picture is, the standard is for the husband's love is the cross of Christ and surrendering everything. Where do we get that? Well, we get it from Ephesians 5 verse 25. Let's carry on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. So number two, Christ's love for the church in the, is the husband's model of sacrificial love for his wife. We're trying to paint a picture. How do our marriages look like Christ in the church? Well, number two, Christ's love for the church is the husband's model of sacrificial love for his wife. And as he puts that into practice, he will help build this picture of Christ and the church in marriage. When he calls husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church, that word in the Greek is agape. There are multiple words in Greek for love, but he uses the word agape here, which means to have a strong affection and love for a person and their good as understood by God's moral character. In other words, his unchanging standards that are always there, always remain, don't change like the tides of culture. They're more God's moral character. 
especially characterized, this word means, by a willing forfeiture of rights and privileges in another one's behalf. This kind of love, this agape love, is the kind of love that is especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights and privileges in another person's behalf. So we've just said, husbands, you're the head of the home. You know what that means? You get to just be the one who dies, man. (laughs) You get to be the one who lays it all out. You know what your leadership means? You know what your specific task and responsibility is? Lay your life down for your family. Be the last to get anything. Be the first to give everything. See, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for his bride. He forfeited all his rights and he became poor so that we could become rich. And Paul says, husbands, that's your model. That's the picture. The self-sacrificing love of Christ is the standard that regulates us. And Jesus, what did he do in that love? Well, he died for her, sanctified her, cleansed her. We'll see her to her full glorification in the future and we'll present her holy and blameless. This is a costly and comprehensive love. So when we talk about headship and leadership in the home, this is what we're talking about because this is what Paul's talking about. He carries on from verse 23, talking about headship, straight into talking about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In fact, when Paul spends this time on marriage in Ephesians 5, he spends three times more, he, puts, he spends uh, three times more instruction given to husbands in this passage on marriage than wives. So naturally in this series, I typically go kind of just as verses go in a packet. We should, if we're kind of going by the order of the verses here, we should be kind of going women in marriage first, then men in marriage, right? Because it starts in the text, verse 22, saying, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But I find in this moment in time that it is critical that we start with the men. First of all, because Paul gives three times more words to it. He puts pen to paper three times more for men in this text and also because of the history and and misuse of these texts. Specifically, the lack of emphasis on the husband's role of sacrificial leadership while an overemphasis on the wife's role of submission. Most of us would be aware of this kind of use. Men who hold that submission role high, right? Follow this verse. Be faithful. When Paul has put to pen three times more to the husbands being sacrificial in their leadership. The starting place has to be, men, that you would capture a a vision for, for all that God has for you in marriage. And it is far more than many of us think. And we need to make up for this mismatched emphasis. Christian husbands are to give all for their wives, including their lives, if necessary. In other words, in the Christian home and the Christian church is the place where women should be most honored, most respected, most cared for in the world. And Christian husbands are to give all for their wives, including their lives, if necessary. That's what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's the cross-shaped pattern of sacrificial responsibility. There's no way around this in the text. Husbands, you have a role to play. It's specific. It's a call to husbands, and you need to play the role. A few weeks ago, right, really recently, actually, there was a shooting in the Burlington Mall just south of the border. And um, I'm not certain. I haven't followed the reports in the last few days, but there was a, a, a... 
wondering about whether the, the, the women were targeted in this shooting. Four women were killed and one man. And the only man that was killed in this shooting when a man went into a department store and began to open fire, the only man that died was a man who was running out with his wife and when she tripped, he came back and got between her and the shooter and took the bullet and he died and she lived. A similar thing happened years ago in a movie theater at a midnight showing of a new Batman movie where a young man out of his mind went into a theater through tear gas and began to open fire. There were four boyfriends there that night who weren't together, didn't know each other, and different places in the theater did the exact same thing. They grabbed their girlfriends, pulled them to the ground, jumped on top of them, covered them, all were shot, all died, none of the girlfriends died. In fact, I saw an interview with one of the young women, and she said, he just, he, he just grabbed me. As the shots began to fire, she, he just grabbed me, put me on the ground, got on top of me, covered my head, and began whispering in my ear, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And then a spray of bullets, and he went silent. He died. She lived. And her parents, you know, the parents of these Boyfriends are interviewed, and it's a mix of emotions because on the one hand, this is an atrocity, and this, this should never have happened. This is an injustice, and we're so sad to see our son die, mixed with the pride of these parents of these young men who did what was right. Look, if our culture is going away from that, count me out. Because on that night, there was a man who was out of his mind and who did something unfathomably evil and in fact was the picture of selfishness and evil. Well, four young men did something unfathomably selfless, which is a picture of strength expressed in love, which is precisely what we're talking about. This is what Jesus did. did strength expressed in love. Jesus, almighty God, condescending to earth, taking on human flesh, dying a sinner's death, though he is perfect. The picture of strength. And you know what that picture of strength is? Express in love, poured out for others. And Paul says, men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We not, even, we not only need to know this as husbands, we need to teach this to our boys, moms and dads. We need to prepare them for Ephesians 5 masculinity. They will be taught things in this culture. We need to teach them things in this day. Ephesians 5 masculinity is sacrificial, selfless, loving leadership, and we need to prepare them to be men. There's, I heard the story of a seminary president, and him and his wife had a few biological children, and then they adopted a few more. They had some boys, they had some girls, and this seminary professor, uh, president, was trying to teach his boys, you know, like, a few different things and what it means to be a man and to grow them to become godly men. And so one of the things he would do is he would regularly say to his boys, the boy goes down so the girl goes free. He was just, kind of, just one of the little things he was trying to do to try to teach them not only to be gentlemen, but to be, teach them to be Ephesians 5 kinds of husbands one day. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. And one day he was working in his home office and he was looking out the window at his kids playing and all of a sudden he saw his little boy jumping in his wagon and darting down the, um, the roadway down this hill and he knew this is bad. Right? He, he knew that he, this was not going to end well because he's flying down this road, down this hill in his wagon. He said, what is he 
doing? And so he, him and his wife run outside, and they hear the crash, and they hear the bangs, and they're like, why did he do that? And they're running down, and then they see their little daughter who was getting into trouble on the roadway and was getting into a dangerous spot, and her brother saw it, hopped on his wagon, and darted down like, for dear life, just stopped his sister, and he's laying on the ground, and he's bleeding, and his parents are just starting to piece this together, and they're trying to see if there's broken bones, and he looks up at his dad and says, the boy goes down and the girl goes free, right, Dad? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Many to learn this. Let's move on. Ephesians 5, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Thirdly, Christ's love for his body, or the church, is the husband's model of nourishing, cherishing love for his wife. I'm not putting these feminine words into this text. Paul is placing these words of nourish and cherish into the text. Christ's love for his body, or the church, is the husband's model of nourishing cherishing love for his wife. Three times in these passages, there's a command to husbands, and every time the command is to love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. See to it, husbands, that you love your wives. It says in this text, there's a new reason given here in this particular instance of of husbands loving their wives, and the new reason is this, because the husband and wife are one flesh. We talked about that in week one. This section, verses 28 through 33, is governed by the Genesis 2.24 statement quoted in Ephesians 5.31. The two shall become one flesh. This is God's doing. A husband and a wife unite in marriage and God makes them one. This section is governed by this. And this is an instruction for the husband to care for his wife in the same way he naturally cares for himself. Generally speaking, we take care of ourselves. Right? Our, our hand touches the element and we take it off, right? Like it's, it hurts, right? And we kind of do that. We, we take care of our, in the same way we are to care for the body as husband is the head. The oneness of the husband-wife relationship is so real that for a man to neglect or harm his wife is to neglect or harm himself. God made it so that the two would become one. So much so that for a husband to harm To neglect his wife is to do that to himself. He should never do that. The model isn't simply that we care for ourselves either, the way we care for ourselves, right? Oh, I take good care of me. I guess I'm supposed to take good care of her. The model is even grander than that. The model is Christ and the way in which he nourishes and cherishes, not himself, but the church, the body. So let me ask you a question. Does Jesus not continually day by day, meet you in your distresses, meet you in your life, meet you when you come to him in prayer, meet you when you come to him in need, meet you when you come to him for closeness and intimacy. He does. And Christian husbands are to affectionately nourish and cherish their wives and tenderly care for their many practical needs. And to be honest, I think this is the hardest part of the sermon right now. Here's why. I think that, 
I trust that. If I needed to make a courageous act of valor and get in front of a bullet for my wife, I would do it, man. I'd do it. I would step in. I would take the bullet. I would die for her. But the thing is, is that Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, and love your wives as you'd love your own body, nourishing and cherishing. It's not just the one act of valor, man. It's the day by day, day in and day out. Will you love your wives? Will you nourish and cherish her daily? Will you not just sit there and say, oh, I take a bullet for you, but to say day by day that you will nourish and cherish? What does that even mean? Emerson Egricks wrote a famous book called Love and Respect. It's based on Ephesians 5.33. Husbands, see to that you love your wives. Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. And he builds a book around love and respect and how husbands and wives feel that love most closely. And so Emerson and his wife conclude this, that when we talk about uh, uh, a wife feeling loved, it, it, it really comes down to these things. She wants to be close to you, for one. She wants to be close to you. She doesn't want distance. She wants to be close to you. She also wants you to open up to her. Many of you are probably like me, and you're like, man, I'd take that bullet, but we got to sit and talk, and you want to hear from my heart? Like, oh, man. <laughs> she wants to be close to you. She wants you to open up to her. He goes on to say, she doesn't want you to fix her. She wants you to listen to her. I make this mistake a lot, and my wife is speaking, and Emerson Egrix is telling me she wants you to listen to her, and I hear her, and I cut her off and say, well, why don't you just do this? And that doesn't, it's not a great, it's not a great move, guys. Like, it's not, it's not the right call in that moment. She just wants you to hear her out, hear her, listen, care. Don't try to fix her, listen to her. Also, she wants you to be willing to say, I'm sorry. See, we get twisted up, don't we? We see this headship piece, and well, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to have this role of leadership in my home, and so I'm the alpha male, and it turns into this weird thing. We're like, I'm not going to say sorry, right? But that's not it at all. Is we're actually to lay our lives down. We should be the first to say sorry, the first to sacrifice most, the first to forgive. We should be the ones to say, I'm sorry, I'm learning this with my boys and fathering is sometimes they do some subtle little thing and I'm just all stressed out or something and so I'm at a 10 right away and I overreact. And I'm learning to humble myself even to my little six-year-old or my four-year-old and get down and be like, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Our pride gets in the way, but Jesus is saying, nourish and cherish Get down on your knees and say, I'm sorry. Be the first to forgive, the first to apologize, the one to sacrifice most. And she wants to know you're committed. All of these things help her know you're committed. And she wants you to honor her and cherish her, he says, which is interesting because that exact same word is used in verse 29, where cherish literally means to treat with tenderness and affection. Husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies, love her in a way where she is nourished and cherished. I heard a man tell a group of men before, you guys need to go to bed tired. There's too many men not going to bed tired anymore. In fact, the unemployment rate of 24 to 54-year-old males in the U.S. is the highest since the Great Depression. And it, the interesting thing, though, is that it's not because they don't want to work. There's a huge category that's actually larger than the ones looking for a job. They don't actually even want to work. 
and they're not working. And they, they, they've got some sort of funding, some sort of help, and they're just able to live. And the, the, the TV watching skyrockets on those who don't want to find a job and aren't working. They were, they're doing like five hours a day on TV and all kinds of internet time. And then, then they go to bed and they're not even exhausted because they haven't done anything. Now look, I'm not making a case, and don't mishear me. I'm not saying, guys, primary breadwinner, you got to work. Wife, stay at home. I'm not going there. Like, my wife works a little bit, and I love the cash. Like, (laughs) I'm grateful. We can do a couple things. It's great. And if she were to work more than me and I were to work less, um, like, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the kind of provision that bears primary responsibility of care in the home that, that your wife and children's needs across the board are met. And so this call to go to bed tired, it's especially for young dads, that you work all day, perhaps, if those are the kinds of hours you do, but typically, you'll work all day and you'll come home. And if you're anything like me, you're going to start to try and find the the me time pretty quick. How how can I just kind of do something for myself? Is this a good time to go for a run or go to the gym? Obviously, I don't. I've already shared that with you, so that doesn't happen, but maybe we'll just walk around. I don't know, like, right, or just just do something where the game's on, so I'll flip it on and I'll kind of play with the kids, but I'm mostly watching that. And, right, but the, the reality, the way that we go to bed tired is you work all day and you come home and you're not half done yet, man. You come home and you invest in your children tirelessly. It isn't you time yet. And so you give yourself to loving those kids. And then you put your kids to bed and you're looking for more me time. Are you not? I am. Let's shut this thing down. And you sit down with your spouse and then, oh, she's ready to connect now. And so it's not you time yet. It's the nourishing and cherishing, the loving your wife as you love yourself. You're looking for the you time, but you're one flesh. You're supposed to be looking for her time. So now you're checking in on her heart. How are you doing? You're listening. You're going there. The game you know you're doing the math is nearly over or whatever, but you're just like, I'm locked in. This is primary. This is the focus. And then she goes to bed, and you know what? You go to bed. Tired. That's it. Be okay with no you time. Ephesians 5 is talking about the fact that you pour yourself out for them. Maybe there's time for a hobby for an hour on a Saturday. Great! But if we would recognize the selfishness in our hearts that say, yeah, the responsibility is there, but man, I'm looking for me time. We're not men yet. We need to grow up. We need to invest in provision. We need to invest in provision in our children, in our wives. And if there's spare time, praise God. Otherwise, we go to bed tired. You know what, man? It keeps us from a bunch of sins anyways. Spare time and lack of tiredness. We just get ourselves into trouble, do we not? Pour yourself out for your family. Far greater. Far greater. Let's conclude. All of this is what it means to be a Christian husband. And in every instance, the purpose and model is Jesus. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm showing you every single time that the reason, the rationale for this language and these instructions are Jesus. Christ's headship is the purpose and model of a husband's headship. Christ's love for the church is the husband's purpose and model of sacrificial love for his wife. Christ's love for the church is the husband's purpose and model of nourishing, cherishing love for his wife. Well, our calling as husbands is to bear the primary responsibility of leadership, protection, and provision for our families. We're not the final or ultimate providers. Jesus provides us with his spirit. You can do it. 
in his strength because he provides us his spirit. He provides us with his strength. And as Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This provision of God in Christ for sinners in general and Christian husbands particularly is what empowers you to lay your life down. Jesus has already provided it all. And so it empowers us to lay our lives down. It's a great day for it to be Thanksgiving because there's a lot of men in the room, myself included, that need his grace. And he offers it freely. There's a lot of men in the room who need to repent. And that's okay because the cross of Christ is sufficient for you. Jesus has already made the grand provision. So you can repent. You can lean on him for grace. And you can even rejoice in thanksgiving. I've got a question for you, husbands. Will you join me in this high and happy calling? It's so much grander than we often think. And you may say, yeah, you don't know my situation, though. And that's true. But look, I know that you can hear this today and that you can lean on Christ today and that you can even try to apply this today. And when you go to bed tired tonight, can I just encourage you men? Try to do it tomorrow. Past is past. And the cross of Christ is sufficient for that. But can you lean on his grace? Can you stand humbly by your wife, by your children, and begin to, to correct some of these ways in which you have not, I have not been in an Ephesians 5 husband? Will you join me in this high and happy calling? Let's pray. Oh, Father. I just know there's, there's so much more that could be said and there's also so much more clarification that can be made. And so we just, we just trust you with that, knowing that there's more to say and weeks to come. And Lord, our desire, our, truly our heart is to unify here, not to tear apart. Our, our heart is to um, dig into what, I think in this moment in time, are some of the most difficult passages we could look at in this day. And so we're trying to look them square in the face. And would you help us to wrestle with the text? Would you help us to bring this to you? Would you help us to bring this to our life groups and wrestle this through and repent where we need to repent and, and, and be convicted where we need to be convicted, Lord? We rely on your spirit to move among us in this. My hope and prayer is that it will lead to the flourishing of marriages, the flourishing of the home. And we need you for that, Lord Jesus. We are so thankful for your grace on this Thanksgiving weekend. We are so thankful that you meet us here and now in our distress, in our highs and our lows, our joys and our sorrows. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and we need you. I pray that the husbands in this place, in this church, would see the purpose and model of their role in marriage as a high one, and seek it in your spirit and your strength daily. In Jesus' name, amen.